When I'm gone, no need to wonder if I ever think of you. The same moon shines, the same wind blows. For both of us and time is but a paper moon. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in North Devon, Matthew and George Russell. Oh yeah, baby, Brian May. Yes, it's Brian May's birthday today. Happy birthday, Brian May. He's 74 today, George. Wow. I can honestly say it's probably Brian May's influence that means I'm doing this podcast and definitely his influence for my other other podcast, (laughs) which is what, George? It's uh, Recovering Queen. Uh, Which is all available on Spotify and other hosts. Um, I can't see why why Brian May's existence had an impact on that, though. On which one? On Recovering Queen? On Recovering Queen. No, it's more obvious on this one because, of course, he is an astrophysicist, PhD, who gave up his PhD because instead of looking at the stars, he wanted to be a star. He could have done both. Yeah. Happy birthday, Brian May. Uh, we love you. Right. Uh, <laughs> George, <laughs> um, uh, I've got an interview today. Very interesting couple of people. Antonino Salmeri and Jenna Tawana, who Jenna, we've had Jenna on before, but uh, they're talking about EAGLE. Now, EAGLE is an acronym. Can you, can you try and guess what it is? Every animal yeah. got yeah. legs. Every animal's got legs. And then the E is silent. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good stab at the acronym. It actually stands for Effective and Adaptive Governance for the Lunar Ecosystem, which nice. I shall put all the links to. It's a very, very cool report done for the Space Generation Advisory Council. I'm going to be grilling them about it in a second. George, thanks very much for filling in again. You're a legend. High nice. five. There we go. That's the sound of high-fiving in in the studio. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, George, have you heard of um, two things? Rogue planets. Yes. And micro-lensing. I have heard of that as well. Have you? Oh, okay then. Right. What's a rogue planet? A rogue planet's basically a planet that doesn't have a parent star. So basically a planet that's either been formed around a star and then just got shot off. Like, okay, that's that's pretty much. I was going to say how, they couldn't form except around a star. Could yeah, they? true. They could Actually, form around a black hole, uh, oh. or in a nebula. Uh, yeah, I suppose they could. Yeah, probably quite rare though. Yeah, yeah, I'd, uh, yeah. They're normally formed in a solar system like our own and flung out by another star or another. Uh, asteroid or something like oh, that. Well, another planet. Normally, yeah, another yeah. large planet sort of disturbs its orbit. And fl- we, that, I guess that's probably what happened in the early solar system. There was probably other planets, and one of them's now gone rogue. Do you know what the first ever rogue planet was? Uh, I don't know. It, it, yeah, it's, it's called Rogue One because they, they made a movie out of it. Oh. Just tumbleweed. Just tumbleweed. Right, okay. (laughs) Moving on. So what about about micro-lensing then? Micro-lensing. It's a bit like uh, gravity lensing on around uh, black holes where the gravity is so strong that it actually acts like a a lens, you know, made of glass or something like that. But with planets, you get a little bit of it uh, and that little amount can be used to see planets that are really far away. Ah, and, and who... 
Who who reckoned that you would see it? Um, I don't know. You don't know? I don't know who reckoned no, no. you could... I mean, a lot of people, actually. Well, yeah, a lot of people, but who was the first? I'll give you a clue. He's the most famous physicist. Was it Einstein? Yeah, Einstein, yeah, predicted it 85 years ago. It's a consequence of general relativity nice. that you would get microlensing. I don't think he thought it was ever going to be possible because it's so... Lu- I mean, how ludicrous is it that we're able to do it? Yeah, that is quite... Ins- it's weird that you can... It's easier to see a planet that way than to just look at it straight up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a, but it's the, it's the chances of seeing, like, a planet just so happened to crossing a star seems to be ridiculously Although there is a remote. lot of them. There's a lot of them, yeah. It turns out that there's, there's, there's way more than you think. In fact, there may be more rogue planets than there are... I meant stars. Unrogue. Oh, well, there's a lot of stars too. But, <laughs> but I, I think there may even be more rogue planets than stars. There's more rogue planets than there are planets around a star. Well, in, in, in other words, there must be more rogue planets than stars then. No, but... Yeah? No, because there are... Mm, maybe there are... Yeah, because there's probably more planets <laughs> than there are stars. Oh, yeah. Gotta be. Maybe. Well, it seems that most star systems have got planets around them. True, but some star, star systems have multiple stars. Oh, God damn it. Yeah, but not meant... I, uh, well, that's an interesting point. That would but, require research. And yeah, we I think just we can't can, be bothered. We, we, we can't be bothered right now because you may have guessed we're in a bit of a rush um, because, yeah, it's all very last minute, this one. Um, George... Um, so anyway, the reason why we're talking about these two things is because there was a paper recently um, called Kepler K2 Campaign 9, Candidate Short Duration Events from the First Space-Based Survey for Planetary Microlensing. And it's really interesting, this, because Kepler is a, a space telescope, as well you know. Yes? I, I do know that Kepler is a space telescope. Yeah, so, and, and obviously it looks... It's, it's been amazing for finding exoplanets. But one of the campaigns it did is, and it's not designed to do this, by the way, but they thought, well, let's, let's see if in principle it's possible. They pointed it at the centre of the Milky Way where there's literally millions and millions and millions of stars, right, in, in a field of view. So you can look at that for ages and try and spot micro-lensing events, and, and, like, Kepler's not really designed to do it. It usually uses the method where you wait for it to go uh, in front of a star, but instead of looking for lensing, you just look for a slight dimming of yeah. the star. But you can do... You can, you can, you can work out... Because instead of dimming with micro-lensing, you get what? Refraction. No, you get brightening. It actually brightens the star. Due because, to refraction. Well, yeah, yes, you, but due to refraction. But but instead of dimming, it, it brightens it yeah, up. Yeah. So Kepler's not quite designed to do that, but obviously it can do that because it's sensitive enough. So that they've used these new new techniques of sorting through the data to try and find stuff. So this is this is a paper uh, uh, by led by a Manchester University. Um, um, well, a team at Manchester University, Ian MacDonald, who's now at the Open University. And yes, this is 2016 data from Kepler. And they've they've found some candidate um, candidate events that could be Earth-sized rogue planet micro-lensing events. Earth and not not Earth-sized, but also it, will it would it be uh, in the area that can support uh, liquid water or? Well, no, but that's the whole point. They're, they're rogue, remember? So they're not around a star. 
Right, yeah. So, but but here's the interesting thing. So, do you think a rogue planet could have liquid water on the surface? If it if it had like enough um, warming within the center, yeah, then so, it could definitely have yeah, liquid so the, water. Yeah, this is interesting, isn't it? So, yeah, you can have like we we talked about a few weeks ago about geothermal energy from radioactive decay. So yes, your your planet can have plenty of heat, enough for liquid water to be on the surface, which I think is amazing. Well, so. there are there are billions of forms of life on Earth which are unaffected by the sun by photosynthesis. Yeah, but like the like the ones that are down on hydrothermal As vents. In, Earth could be kicked out of the solar system. All all photosynthetic life and and any life that relied on it would die. Yeah, but there'd still be all that life that was under the surface that's on that energy gradient of mm. of it's it's actually taking energy from the center of the earth mm. i guess i guess if humans learnt to farm that you could you could just about survive just about survive yeah 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 um but it's not just that get this as well a lot of these rogue planets and this would be the most genius discovery ever a lot of those rogue planets may have maintained their moon when they got chucked out so say if Earth did get chucked out, actually there'd be some occasions where it would maintain the moon with it, and so you could have um, um, you could have gr- gravitational uh, heating that could sustain. Uh, how does, life how as does well. gravitational heating work then? Gra- gravitational tidal effects could uh, push and pull the the inside of your planet or moon, heating the surface up. So I guess you're the movement of of tide like water tides of water as well would really help life as well it's so so yeah it's actually really interesting so there actually may be rogue planets with life on them i guess all planets could have life on them yeah but i i must admit i just thought they would be these cold dark worlds yeah that that is hurtling through the the surface will always be like that but it's 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 the actual the core can be whatever it Mm. wants because but the thing that stresses me out, George, is that the fact that there's these planets that are out there. That what would happen if it one entered the solar system? Uh, Kirkub <laughs> Blitz or whatever or the the YouTube channel, yeah, you know, the kind of infographic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he did a video about what happens if a rogue planet did go into the solar system, mm. and, and there are certain events where it could kick out Earth or. You know, using gravity. I things. reckon it would be bad news. I think it would be pretty awful. Yeah, I, I prob- probably <laughs> in some in some cases. Yeah, maybe. It, but it like the thing is, like the the margins of error are so large that a slight change could mean the difference between being as like a tiny speck in the sky and like actually hitting Earth. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's the fi- there's a film called Melancholia. That's quite a good film, actually, and, and and it's very brilliant imagery right at the beginning, and it's about a planet called Melancholia entering and, and actually impacting Earth uh, and, and the last few days before that happens. But, yeah, I, I guess so. I guess the, because the solar system is vast, I suppose you could have a planet whiz through, but it's the, it's the all the planets it are... It probably in... already has, if you think about it. Yeah. If there be, are that many it'd be interesting. rogue planets... And also, the uh, the moon is theorized to have been created by a Mars-sized rock hitting Earth. Uh, yeah, but that, but that but that was probably one of the see right in the early formation of the of the solar system, all the orbits don't sort of settle out into yeah. their into their nice. Well, there orbits. were probably tens of planets in the solar system at one point. Well, yeah, I don't I don't know about that because there's the Nice model, isn't there? That but where I think there was 
a few. And, you know, and Mercury has had it, it, it looks like it's the core of a planet that's been all smashed off. And, of course, there's old Psyche, that massive um, metal object that's out in the asteroid belt. Yeah, Mer- that's probably a core of a planet. Mm. Mercury's really dense, is, uh, which, which would suggest that, because despite being much smaller than Mars, it has the same gravity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Mercury probably is is like Psyche, a, a, a core of a planet that's had its outer edges smashed off. It's not, but that even that's not a slam dunk, by the way. Those both are, but theories. But we'll know, won't we, when they go out to Psyche? We'll know more about that. I'm pretty. That's like, one of my favorite missions. We could just ask the planet. We could just ask the planet. Hey, hey, planet, what happened? Hopefully, it'll answer. If panpsychia is true, that might be. true. <laughs> but, I don't right. think being conscious just allows you to then uh, communicate with and it and remember oh, things. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, but uh, so anyway, I mean, it, this 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 Kepler telescope usage is like really really clever, and, and it's and it's it's managed to sort of get some of these events, and they look quite compelling. And it's and it's more of a sort of way of saying yes, this is actually possible. We can probably find rogue planets and have a look at them using similar techniques. So of course they're going to be uh, flying other um, other telescopes up soon. So that should be pretty cool. So the 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 one that's going to be huge for this is the uh, Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope that's going to be flying soon. That's going to be a big one. And, of course, ESA have got their own Euclid mission as well. So they will be looking out, and they're optimised for micro-lensing events. So so we could see a whole like host of this kind of thing coming up. So that got to admit, that's pretty exciting. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. Also, if there are rogue planets which are closer than our nearest uh, solar system other than our own, hmm. that could serve as like a kind of midway point for interstellar travel because right now if to go to the closest star we have to travel four point something like light years <laughs> yeah but, but if there's a rogue planet that's like coming our way one light year you know we could land a probe on that and it would at least serve as like some kind of like stepping stone oh, like a trans like a transport device through the uh through the <laughs> well not like a transport because if, oh, okay. if you're if you're landing on a planet you're already at the velocity that it is like, yeah it doesn't Oh yeah, doesn't really mm. work like no, that. No, no, yeah, you're right. Well, yeah, damn it. No, because I guess you get like a boost. You get, you maybe get a little bit of yeah, gravitational. Like if it orbited, it did a suborbital maneuver of the sun, <laughs> then it, it maybe the extra mass gives it. You get a little bit of of a kick off it. Yeah, but I, it, I don't it, think. Uh, no, no. It, it, uh, how hard this is to do, by the way. Is um is it's and it's all to do with the cacophony of noise of looking directly into the center of the galaxy and it's like lo- lots of stars and dust and everything else to, to sort of compensate for uh, and the um, Ian from Manchester he suggests that it's it's about as easy that's about as easy as looking for a single blink of a firefly in the middle of a motorway. Using only a handheld phone. That is quite hard. Yeah, that's very hard, isn't it? So, um, yes, that was my Manchester accent for anyone who doesn't know what a Manchester accent is like. I did you like? It? I didn't know until now. Because... Okay, that's a bit like a Manchester accent. Bit, it's a bit like Liverpool, but they would never admit it. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, we've rabbited on. We, I thought that's definitely worth having a look at. It's a really, really cool uh, paper and. 
it's exciting, isn't it? Rogue planets and 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 the thing that blows my mind is the fact that you could have liquid water on them. There could be people living. There might be people living on a rogue planet, thinking that's the norm. Yeah, they might be thinking, "Whoa, uh, it must be so dangerous living on one of those planets that's, that's next to a star." Around a star, that would be kicking out solar. It's like radio. burning. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. It's like, what are those things? Yeah, it's a yeah. I mean, it is just a frame of reference. You know, if you've evolved on a planet that yeah. hasn't have doesn't have a star. Yeah, it's in fact it, it's almost quite exciting zipping through the universe not tied to a star. Yeah, or I suppose the star isn't. You're actually our, going somewhere. Our star isn't really tied to anything though, as in it's, no, but, but it's we, moving but, around. Yeah, but we have to sort of go around with the star in, in orbit around the galaxy, whereas these rogue planets might be going in any direction. It yeah, might be going across the galaxy. Outside of who, solar who systems, things are so far away that yeah, you can be moving literally light years. <laughs> well, you could be second. moving, yeah, and, and still not, yeah. It's like, who knows? Who knows, who knows who, how far yeah, yeah, Well, who knows when you'll ever come across anything? It's, mm. it's I mean, a very the sky, vast place. The sky stays pretty much the same oh, I know. I for know. billions of years. Yeah. George, would you like to hear my um, interview? Uh, well, it's more, it's more of a discussion with um, uh, Antonino and Jenna from the Space uh, from the Space Generation Advisory Council. What makes, it, what makes it a uh, in discussion rather than an interview? Um, that's a pretty good point. Let, let, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what, I wonder what the, read, what the listeners will think. Yeah. Will, will the listeners think it was a discussion or an interview? Write in the comments down below. <laughs> <laughs> Write in the comments down below. Right. Um, a Kutai. The Interplanetary... Podcast, putting the ace back into space. Right, so I'm joined on the Interplanetary Podcast by Jenna and Antonino from the Space Generation Advisory Council, but more specifically, Eagle. I'm going to let one of them explain, so I'm going to pick on Antonino, because he was the first one into the into the Zoom chat today, and I'd said that he was going to get kudos for doing so. But, well, first of all, just give us a, a kind of rough overview about what Eagle is. Right. So thank you, Matt, for having me today uh, together with Jenna in this interplanetary podcast. I'm really excited to have a nice chat uh, with you about EGO. So EGO stands for Effective and Adaptive Governance for a Lunar Ecosystem. It's an acronym for an action team that is being created by the Space Generation Advisory Council. Now, one year ago, so we are celebrating our first birthday in uh, at the end of June with the purpose of uh, advocating for the position of the young generation uh, for the development on lunar governance, right? And not just any lunar governance, but effective and adaptive lunar governance. So the Eagle Action Team has been developed uh, by SGC because we thought, we thought and we found that there was a um, gap in the discussion on lunar governance. And this gap was uh, that nobody was providing the input uh, and the thoughts and the and the ideas of the young generations. And so there was a brilliant discussion out there, but there was this part missing. And since everybody's talking about going to the moon sustainably and enabling a new era of sustainable space exploration, I asked myself what sustainability means. What is the real implication of sustainability? And in short, it is being able to hand over to the next generation, right? It means that whatever we're doing now could be done in the future by our by the people who will follow us. And so how can you claim, how can you actually develop any sustainable regulation, any sustainable exploration, if you're not involving the people who are supposed to inherit the results of that sustainable exploration? 
And so that's how the idea started. I, I spoke about it with the leadership of SJC. Uh, they, uh, they haven't heard of it before, but they were happy to see how that thing would go. Uh, and so we created a team. We made a selection of, of people. We ended up with the 14 uh, bright minds that we have today, including obviously Jenna. And we started working. Uh, so the whole thing was very much experimental. Uh, but I have to say, after one year, it uh, it went pretty well. And so we produce a lunar governance report, uh, and the report has been presented at the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space in order for states to consider our ideas uh, for the regulation of the moon. And among those, we came up with a proposal for a new instrument governing um, or potentially governing the use and exploration of the moon, which is the idea of a lunar governance charter, which is something we can talk about better maybe uh, later today. But the idea was really to reinvent a little bit the narrative of lunar governance through the work of uh, the Eagle team. So that is in extreme uh, summary what we've yeah. done so far. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. So my, my, my first question then is, is who, who are the sort of normal people that would take charge of this kind of thing because you've got you, you like you said you've got this young generation coming through so presumably there's an older generation who are who are normally sort of looking at this kind of stuff who is that and were they doing a good job <laughs> i like to i like for jenna to go and take a oh god <laughs> so um yeah no i i to be honest with you i think i actually realized how fragmented this is until we started doing our work. And the first phase of our work was actually interviewing a lot of people that have been thinking about this. Um, so we interviewed, um, you know, Mike Gold, who thought a lot about the Artemis Accords. We uh, interviewed people from Moon Village Association, from Moonkind. Um, so there's a, a whole host of people thinking about it, ranging from space agencies to nonprofits to, um, you know, individual countries to individuals themselves. Um, but it, it, so it feels like a lot of people are thinking about it, but there's still, there, there was a lot of like peace, people have kind of thought about pieces of it. And so, um, yeah, there, there has been a lot of thinking ranging from a lot of different actors, but they really are, um, they really were fragmented. And so our first kind of point of call that um, Antonino directed the team to do is kind of have these uh, hearings or these meetings with people where we could understand what, they, what they've been thinking about, why their rationale. And then we can also kind of ask them, you know, what do you think going forward? What, what, where do you disagree and where do you agree with other actors? And that, that little fact finding was so important, right? Because we didn't want to reinvent the wheel, but at the same time we needed to gather the rapists before we could have a good output, right? So um, it had a lot of thinking had been done, but actually trying to figure out the links between it, where it overlaps, where it diverges, was something pretty pretty new and quite difficult. But we got there in the end. Because <laughs> I guess what happens, and and I think that probably anyone who works in an office will will um, will be able to <laughs> sympathise with this is that you get silos yeah. of people who totally. love the blue sky thinking element of it and go off yeah. and and don't even tell the other people that they're doing it sometimes and, and sort of blue sky an idea and reinvent the wheel. And yeah. really and really that the, the difficult work isn't that because that's the exciting work, isn't it? And I guess so you actually went out and 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 consciously did that. You went out and 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 said, look, lots of people have been doing blue sky thinking work, but but it's not joined up. So so that was one of the sort of first things that you spotted. Have I got that right? Mm -hmm. in, in no. summary of what you just said yeah 
Indeed. Uh, for me, that was a starting point, actually, uh, because I work in this, right? So I'm a space lawyer. I do research on lunar governance and space resources specifically for my job. So um, even, even before doing the hearings, I already knew and I had the sense that this was very fragmented and that there was nobody trying to talk with the others. And this happens both at the policy level and also at the technical level, because you have so many people currently planning missions on the moon. And somehow they all act as if they're, uh, they're going to be the only one there or the first one there. And so nobody's actually thinking, you know, what if there's going to be another person operating next to my area, right? What am I going to do there? Right? And, and nobody... I can swear to you, nobody thinking about this, only very few people. So I said, okay, maybe, maybe it's worth talking with these people separately and then being the contact point, right? This is what I, I imagine we could do with the hearings. And I have to say it was a fantastic experience because uh, we reached out to 21 different stakeholders. We interview uh, uh, around 30 people in total because some stakeholders sent more people. And uh, and in the end, what we found out is that they haven't really thought thought about it. They, you know, everyone was very much focused on their own thing, which which makes total sense, right? We are still in a very preliminary stage. I don't want to blame anybody. I think you know it's not so easy to to try and have always this systemic approach. But this is one of the value uh, the the contributions, the unique contributions of our report that you will find a section where we say, okay, we've looked into this, we've spoken with the people, we've studied the documents, those are the things in common, those are the things that we disagree upon, and now we can finally have a meaningful conversation about building upon the agreements and solving the disagreements. I think the other thing to, which is really interesting about the work we did is not only did we approach people from all over the world, ranging from Japan to uh, Australia to America to Chile, we also reached out to people from um, all different kind of functions and backgrounds. And that it was so interesting having these discussions, even within our team, right? Because we are engineers, we're lawyers, we're some people are prioritizing commercial, other, other team members were prioritizing scientific and kind of the same, but not the same. And it was our it was our role to try and, you know, put put our own personal, you know, priorities uh, aside and then really think through for everyone what could be the right answer. Um, so as well as, yeah, geography, there was function, there was, you know, public, private. It was, it was interesting. <laughs> it was so yeah, I mean, good though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, talking of stakeholders, I mean, yeah. I mean, this is going to be a, a very short point, um, is that uh, a, a couple of years ago, I had a, a chap called Moribar Jar on, but he talks about, you know, uh, stakeholders being like Aborigines and, and and people like that, you know, Aboriginal people who who look up at the night sky and they don't have a choice about, you know, that you know they're left out of the conversation. Might there be communities that are sort of left out of out, out of your conversation, even though... Um, you think you've gone to all the stakeholders, but but is is can you ever be sure that you really are getting all the stakeholders? It's a very good question. I'll give you my answer, but I, I really would like to hear also what Jenna says. Um, this is the thing: there are some communities which will be very hard to reach out. Uh, and I'll be uh, very honest now. For instance, that although we had twenty-one uh, interviews with so many different people, we didn't manage to get anybody from Africa. Although we tried, uh, we got we got invitations out, but we never got the reply um, because maybe this country thinks this is not of their immediate interest, or maybe we didn't find the right people. And so that's already an example of a community that we didn't manage to include in our report. Although we had a member of our team, uh, Nuria, is uh, is from there, so is from Kenya, 
So we got that perspective in our team, but couldn't get it when we when we were looking for stakeholders. So exactly taking on um, your question. And then another community that I think it would be difficult to reach is the indigenous one. But I think are the, they deserve to be heard because they share a sort of an emotional and spiritual connection with the moon. There are many communities on earth who look at the moon as an important symbol of, you know, of the universe or as a goddess, perhaps even. And, you know, although I understand that it's very difficult to reach out to them and to find a compromise between the fact that we want to do activities there and the fact that they maybe think of the moon in sacred terms, but at least, you know, we want to find a, a way to include you so that we can um, we can address concerns that you have in the best possible way that we can. So, right, those are the two uh, communities that I that I think of that are much more difficult to reach out because I tried and um, so far I didn't succeed. Of course, we will continue, uh, but it has been quite uh, quite difficult. And I understand it is something that we need to improve also as a space community in general and not just the lunar or eagle one. Yeah, and and just to add to that, so I completely, yeah, completely agree with everything Antonino said, and it it really is difficult. Um, so SJC is obviously a very global organization. Um, obviously, we're fourteen people from ten countries, but we try to kind of be the voice of, you know, the most vocal and then the least vocal um, in the space kind of world. So. Um, a lot of our ideas revolve around things like uh, inclusivity, benefit sharing, capacity building. And that's to recognize that, you know, even though we have these some giants today going to the moon or aspiring to go to the moon, we fully recognize that some some nations aren't there yet. They haven't prioritized it yet. Um, they don't have it's them yet. But we wanted to create something that going forward um, really, really kind of helps build the the more space um, aspiring nations rather than currently space faring ones too. Um, so hopefully a lot of our principles that you could see in our report um, would potentially be the voice of those that are, we didn't get to interview, we didn't get to speak to. Um, but that was really important for us. And we did, it was one of the first things I think we were consensus on as a group that that, that should be at the forefront of our, of our work. Yeah, exactly. We tried uh, to be as inclusive as possible. You've got a report and a manifesto out. That, that there were sort of three documents: that the report, the executive mm-hmm. summary of the report, and this manifesto. Is, is the manifesto a, a direct yeah. output of the report? Is I, I like Jenna to answer that because she directly worked on the manifesto. <laughs> so I oversaw the thing, but I, I want to see. I want to know what she thinks. How does she <laughs> yeah. see it? <laughs> yeah. So I. Um, so the manifesto. <laughs> Uh, it, in in short, yes, they all are very much uh, the same story, just in different uh, levels of detail and different lengths, I guess. The manifesto was trying to be a bit more of a um, like visual, uh, easily accessible, readable um, version of the exec sum in the report. Um, but yeah, in, you'll be able to find like all, all the information about um, why why our work is needed, action, some of the global priorities. We through um, some of the key things that are important in a in a lunar charter that Antonina mentioned earlier, um, and then a bit about the team. Right, um, it's it, one of the one of the biggest advantages um, of like the group that we the group that we have, and you know this this kind of thinking is it really is such a diverse team. So we wanted to really bring that out um, as a bit of a unique selling point. Um, of this work too so a lot lot about the team um, and our background and and kind of why we got involved so um, all of that is in the manifesto and it's easy to read Um, the reports and the exec sum is um, very wordy but the manifesto is the more visual 
the more visual um, stuff. So yeah, it's it's very cool. But you can find all the info there too. Yeah, we we really wanted to to reach different audiences, right? So uh, the three documents, they as Jenna said, they they tell the same story, but they do it in a different way, and they speak to different people in a way. I I think it's going to be hard to find somebody who read all the three of them in details and that can resonate with all of them. But uh, for instance, the report. Uh, will be very useful for the academic community, you know, and people who want to know about lunar governance in details and they want to have the information that they cannot find anywhere else because to a certain extent, our report is a unique source of information, especially because of the global priorities and the results of the interviews that nobody else has ever done, not in the history of SGC, nor in actually in the history of lunar uh, lunar governance. Uh, and so that's one type of document. And then the executive summary is for more decision makers, right? Because they still want to find out about the details and the concrete stuff, but they don't have time to read 50 pages, right? So they want to read a, a very short version that will tell them, this is what we want you to do, and this is why we want you to do it. And, and then you have the manifesto, which for me is one of the documents I am the most proud of, actually, because I, I love this type of visuals. You know, I, I like to send a message and to tell a story, and I think manifesto does that in a beautiful way. And this is our... Um, let's say, introduction to the space community, to the people who are not familiar with the topic, who are not interested in knowing too much about it, but they want to know why lunar governance is important, what is our story, and how are we contributing to that? And, and the manifesto, I think, does that brilliantly. And so this is the one that will reach the most people, I think, the people who will not go into the details, but who will be, um, who will be concerned about our story and hopefully will take action afterwards because this is this is the core of our message of our work uh, we don't think we have all the answers our report is very much a starting point uh, but what we want for the people to read and to understand is that they need to take action at different levels in different ways but we all need to start moving and so i i hope that the three documents can convey these messages um, in, in to different audiences so that we can have that inclusivity also um, achieved through the fact that we are able to speak uh, to different people in the community. You're giving a message there that, that obviously there's a there's a kind of urgent need for action. So, yeah. in your opinion, what what are the sort of <laughs> what are the what are the things that have come up while you're doing this? You know, while you're doing this, looking into this, what are the things that have come up that you go, oh my god, we we really need to sort this out because it's it's looking. Very yeah, shady. I mean, I can jump in on that. So I and I actually think it's a it's a common thing that we see in the space industry as a whole, right? Where um, technology moves at pace. Um, people are inspired. They're passionate. People are very smart, very innovative, and so we we want to get stuff out there. We want to get stuff moving, and then and constantly trying to run behind and catch up, right? Um, and you see this with space sustainability. Ability, you see it. Uh, I think you'll see it very soon with lunar governance and lunar activity. Um, and so, you know, given given the rise of uh, commercialization, you know, obviously there's a whole host of um, private companies going to the moon, aiming to go to the moon in the next uh, few years, next year, and the year after. Um, there, there really is a need not only to start figuring out the relationship between public and private. Um, entities and who is liable and where responsibility lies. Um, but also, as Antonina said, that, you know, yes, we have several countries signed up to things like the Artemis Accords, but there's a whole load out there that aren't, right? If, if 
China are doing one thing, um, and America and and Japan and all the other autonomous countries are doing another thing. Um, at some point, we're going to get a bit of a polarization where, you know, one half of the moon you're going to you're going to see one type of base, and on the other half you're going to see another type of base, and it's kind of like, guys, do you, do you not see that we need something in between? Um, so I think there is I think there is a there is a need uh, quite urgently not only for things like um, yeah pr- private companies mining and you know how, how much water is available and therefore is it a resource and if it is a resource who can use it and should they be able to use it um, but it's it's also the polarization of nations and you know all the politics on earth that that the political issues on earth that may come with um, so it's really interesting and. I think the added difficulty that we have is that it was just so interesting debating about it lots and lots in our group because I was kind of like, oh, you know, we need to concretely decide what's resources. And the rest, and like some of the team were like, we can't do that yet. And so it's just really making each other understand um, and appreciate how actually we don't know everything about the moon. And so putting together a governance, perfect governance for it is so difficult. So it's going to have to keep evolving. Um, but that doesn't mean that we need to stall until we get there, right? Like we can try and get ahead of it. We can try and, you know, put push things through in parallel. But it is a bit of a, you know, oh, we don't want to go yet because we don't know. But oh, we need to go because things are happening. Um, so every, in this weird little we need to act, we kind of know we need to act. We don't know how to act situation. So Antonina very bravely stepped up and <laughs> decided to do something about it. Um, but no, it was, it's, I think there definitely, definitely is a need uh, very soon, especially with resources. Yeah. Couldn't explain any better. Because <laughs> <laughs> I complimented you halfway through that time. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, and really in, in, in the, the message is that um, the first missions will start over the next years and then decades, uh, but diplomacy is very slow. Um, this is something that I can tell you being involved in it. And so if we don't start now, it will be really late when we actually have everybody already acting on the moon. So to add to whatever to all that Jenna said, and I completely agree, um, is that you have really no idea how slow is diplomacy. And so that that is why I felt the urgency because some people... You know, may actually look at the plans and say, hey, we have a couple of rovers going there, just doing, you know, the, the, the scouting, the, the prospecting. It's going to be fine for the next five to 10 years. It's still enough time. But believe me, five to 10 years in diplomacy, it's really, really not enough to develop the regulation you need to ensure that there is going to be no conflicts and that the moon will remain the peaceful environment has been so far. Uh, and, so, and so that is why we have the urgency. It has to be let's say, related and contextualized uh, with the path that diplomacy has. And, and it is not that we can skip that. That's the thing for me, right? Because some people will say, okay, just screw up the, the international space law process. Let's just go with states and we'll figure it out. That would be a mistake. Just giving up just because we don't think we, we can do this on time and, and we don't want to pressure the beginning, that would be a mistake because we will regret it once we're going to have states polarized, as Jenna said, once we're going to have interferences, once we're going to have uh, criticism on the resources, retortions, and, and the situation can really escalate very quickly. So that's why we need to act now, um, because we, we understand that it's going to take time for us to agree on what we want to see on the moon, even at a very basic level. And, and the process needs to start now because it's worth it. That's also the point. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always sitting here thinking, you know, you've got commercial players now as well, 
which are actually mm-hmm. poised to be probably <laughs> uh, overtaking, <laughs> you know, national players in terms of their ability to get to the moon and, and do stuff on the moon. So, you know, and, and obviously, I, I, I'm, and correct me if I'm wrong, they're kind of covered by the, the nation state that they <laughs> that they live in. But like if, if, if Elon Musk, for want of a better person, decided to... <laughs> decided to go rogue a little bit on the moon and and sort of play fast and loose with some of this stuff. It's not like the American government is going to suddenly go round his house with tanks. So who the heck enforces who the heck enforces that kind of stuff? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the question. This is actually the question of my PhD. So you're going to have to wait until it's finished. <laughs> 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 Matt casually asking a PhD level question in the podcast. <laughs> um. The simple answer is that nobody has the power to enforce anything on the moon in place uh, for many reasons. Technical reasons, we don't even know how that would work, and legal reasons. Because uh, according to international space law, the moon shall be used exclusively for peaceful purposes. And so uh, there is at the moment no legitimacy to go there and exercise the use of force uh, for for any reason, actually. But thankfully, we have pretty much convincing elements to to force uh, or to enforce certain regulation on earth because at the end of the day um, people operating on the moon they have their assets on earth <laughs> they have their people on earth at some point they have to come back and, and so that's that's our grip you know to make them do and, and and play by the rules and i can tell you that the u.s government has um many many obviously issues in, in many things but in space they are uh, they're trying to play by the rules as much as they can. And so that's why actually Elon is always complaining about the FAA and the rules and the fact that in this way we'll never become a multiplanetary species and whatnot. He complains about, but they are, they will make sure that he plays by the rules because it's their international reputation at stake. So they are responsible for whatever they will do on the moon and they don't want to be blamed for something bad happening. Um, so that's that's a guarantee uh, that uh, at least commercial players will be kept in check for the time being. Uh, then once we have an actual you know, economy developed on the moon and, and fully operational there, it will be a different story, but it will also be a problem for the next, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 years minimum. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, 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 only, the only issue I'd take with it is that obviously if Elon Musk is, is generating a huge amount of money for the economy, then don't the doesn't also the American government in the same way in some ways that Elon Musk has been very persuasive with 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 the legal institutions anyway in terms of the stuff that he's doing with his mega constellations etc cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean I'm not I mean I'm not completely finger wagging at the U- US and, and Elon Musk because I'm sure it's I'm sure it's a it's a completely universal <laughs> phenomena that 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 you have commercial players and and really it's the money that talks so. There must be something in what you've done to kind of address that element of it, because how how do you stop runaway capitalism? I suppose on the I don't like to use the word capitalism, but runaway kind of money making on the moon, where you in the same way that we've had it on Earth. I mean, it's not it's not like we've protected. We're not being very good at protecting environments on the Earth, let alone. On a on on somewhere where there's no indigenous people or no neighbours and everything else, it, it it seems like it would be very hard for it not to become a free for all, a dangerous free for all. You know, Jenna has the background to answer this better than me. But my 
my simple answer is that at the moment there's no money to be made on the moon <laughs> like not a single penny <laughs> there's nothing great thanks for that Antonino <laughs> can you tell me nobody has an actual business model to make a lot of money on the moon the, the honest company you speak to they will tell you it's going to take decades before we can make a single profit and in the meantime we need governments to fund us and to support us because you know you go to the moon you take the ice who are you going to sell it to what are you gonna do with it? <laughs> you know, and it's already costing yeah. millions of dollars to go there. So yeah, you you can tell me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there is a there is an element of I, I, to Matt, I completely see your point, and it's something that I'm I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not the most my instinct would be like you know we should have something binding and people should be punished, and in reality, this is the UN, so we're, we're limited. But aggressive I can be. But anyway, um, when it comes to private companies, I think the the one thing that could be really powerful is if investors have the right ethics, right? Because a company should be backed by investors only if they have adhered to everything, if they are responsible, if you know they they know that they're not going to mine something that's just either not going to have any value because it's technically illegal on earth or it's just going to go on the black market or anything like that, right? So um, I think here, yes, the private companies need to have some sort of um, uh, some accountability, but hopefully the kind of the companies and the private companies that don't have the right ethics or the right intent or the right morals won't be backed. Um, and it's it's up to the investors to really make sure that, you know, that they they're confident that if their company goes to the moon, it's going to be the right way, it's gonna, it's gonna be um, a valuable product and it's gonna be a legit product. So I think it's it's hopefully the whole business ecosystem. But you're you're right in that um like a lot of a lot of the thinking that we did was kind of like you know even if you say that a company can operate for a certain amount of time in a certain place and then you know it's it's limited in terms of you know what what activity they can do even if we go that far and try to limit that you know how do you ensure that the company is operating sustainably right so if if they're going to if they're going to mine something how do we know that they're not going to completely obliterate it for 5 years <laughs> even in some sort of crazy state and then it's just not their problem, and and that's why it's 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 all to do with the the wording. It's all to do with exactly how this, if the charter does go through or it is adopted, this idea of a charter, how it's set up. Um, but it really is like every, everything we tried to try to mitigate or come up with, we were kind of like, oh, but the private companies could just do their own thing. So we did we did try that. <laughs> no, but we did try. But I think it's I think it's everyone being accountable across the whole business ecosystem, not. You know, and and making sure that everyone is enforcing it when someone kind of strays away a little bit. So, um, hopefully that that helps. Um, and someone mm-hmm. along the along the chain has but, a good sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I, I guess, I guess, eco business systems though are a bit like nations in the right. fact that there's many of them, and fractured all over the place. Aren't yeah, they? this is it. This is it. And so, and you know, it's it's partly due to the fact that actually going to the moon, there's little opportunity for differentiation mm-hmm. right now um so as weird as it sounds there really is so you know hopefully as as this kind of rush continues um and as this lunar kind of economy matures a little bit we'll get to see a bit more of a consolidation a concentration a bit more cooperation rather than all these little startups doing their own thing and and (laughs) running right you know jenna just jenna brought a good point that um the financial part will play a role you know in mining in current temporary mining on earth 
Um, you cannot invest, you cannot get certain funding if you don't comply with certain standards, right? Like the JORC standard, for instance, in the um, in the system of terrestrial mining. And so iSpace is trying to do the same thing. So they have a project for development of standards for a sustainable and responsible mining on the moon. And the idea is that the standards could be adopted at a broader level. And so if you don't follow the standards, you don't get the funding, you don't get the license, you don't get anything. And so this is, then this comes from the company itself, right? It's not coming from any government. It's not coming from a separate actor. It's the company that recognizes the value in understanding and playing by certain rules that everybody agrees. And I'll tell you another thing, which is that, you know, space and, and the moon, especially, it's a very public environment. When operations will start on the moon, everyone will look at them. Everyone will keep an eye on whatever is happening on the moon. If you screw up, and people find out it's going to be a major thing on it's going to be everywhere people will notice and so companies don't want that they don't want the bad publicity they don't want to be in the bad outlook that will come if they do something bad because there's no way to cover up right and so this is also a natural incentive for them to play well because they understand that if they don't they're going to be in the public eye and they're going to be trashed and so that's that's another element to keep into account and i'm actually writing a a paper for the next International Astronautical Congress about the application of game theory um, reasoning to, um, to to whistleblowing or cartel behaviors on the moon. And so like when, when you want to do something bad, what's going to be your options and do you have more to gain or to lose in, um, you know, in, in also like um, surveying each other among companies or carteling, right? Where do you, where will companies tend to be Normally, they tend to cartel, but I, I argue that in a special environment like the moon, there is more incentive to actually, you know, uh, spot the others uh, rather than uh, carteling with them. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought wow. I'd hear the word cartel and <laughs> yeah. moon in the same sentence. Right? <laughs> we have to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, cool. I mean, you, for me, hit a kind of nail on the head in the fact that, that currently there is no way to make money on the moon and it is quite hard to think of ways that you could really won't some people think that's one of the reasons why um it's it's so hard to come up with like a moon charter you know as something that everyone can stick to because it's such an it's it's still such an unknown thing i mean i don't doubt that there will be something that comes along and everyone goes mm-hmm. ah right that's how you make money from it you know it's like tr- you know trying to think of bitcoin before bitcoin existed is impossible right <laughs> but, but someone's making money <laughs> but so i guess there's there, there will be a lunar equivalent to that so yeah i, I mean it, does that play into it the fact that that really it's an unknown about how it will really it actually does. look it, it definitely does um i think the best way to to kind of think of it's going to sound a bit strange but you know if if you think of a if you think of an amusement park or a theme park there's not it, it's kind of like why would you go and then you you kind of can apply the same logic to the moon of what why like you're not making money you're not why, why would you go right and where you make money from whether it's an amusement park or it's the moon it's people will always want to experience that there will always be this fascination to expand onto other planets to expand humankind to set up a moon base and so actually the way you make money is 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 less of a direct monetization like a product or a specific service that you can mine from the moon and sell you may be able to do that great but there's going to be a lot of revenue um coming through um, from other markets, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like the the construction, the power, the 
um, communication, know, vacuum service. That yeah, that actually everything that you can imagine making money on Earth. If you create a lunar economy sophisticated enough, there will be revenue streams for you. And so, for a lot of terrestrial companies, I mean, the ideal is they have their their income statements and their balance sheets, and the moon is just like another line in it. So, if a terrestrial company can can make money on Earth by providing fans, by providing electricity, providing comms, then they can do the same on the moon. And so it's it's less of a direct, let's mine this material and it will be worth billions. Mm-hmm. It's it's all these other peripheral things for the economy. Yeah, well, I suppose I could I could be a, a moon gig promoter. I could start having bands up there. Yeah, for exactly. <laughs> Yeah, do it, do it. <laughs> you find entertainment. You could be, yeah, 100%. Yeah. It's going to have to be some fee, isn't it? To get, yeah. <laughs> to get the, you know, you know the, all the bodies up there. Be paid in a moon, in a moon journey. <laughs> you know, it's in the title, right? So the title of Ego is Effective and Adaptive Governance for a Lunar Ecosystem. So what just Jenna explained is in our title, is in what we think should happen, right? adaptiveness is a key element of course we don't know at the moment what's gonna what's gonna happen on the moon over the next 10 to 15 years in terms of how it will all play out but this is fine and that's why we are looking for adaptive governance and this is why we came up with a lunar charter and not a specific lunar code for instance right we we came up with something that will define the starting point for future incremental regulation but you you know we need to start somewhere, and not just because we need to start, but because if we leave all actors free to develop their own thing, the risk of divergence will be too high. And again, we end up with conflicts which we want to avoid and which are not good for business anyways, right? So the charter gives a framework, gives the boundaries of like, okay, this is the, the, the basic things that we agree upon that we're not going to do on the moon or that we want to do with the moon. And then you feel the details, right? And you're free to do that based on the experience that you gain. And then you can increase and revise whatever you have done. But still that general framework that we, uh, that we are proposing with the charter can be developed now because we already know now that we don't want to screw up with certain areas of the moon. We already know now that we definitely want to encourage private actors to participate in lunar activities, but that we want to do that at a certain at, a cer- at certain conditions, right? And this will not change in the future, or shouldn't change, I hope. And so we can start with that. And then we say, okay, specifically, your mining site will be 10 kilometers or 20 kilometers or five kilometers, depending on how, how much we understand that we can mine and how much you can stay there and, and, and so on and so forth, right? But the fact that there has to be a limit, you know, that's already that we can already agree upon that. And, and so then we find the details later on. And the second thing that Jenna said is the ecosystem, which for us is it's very important, right? We want to develop the moon in a circular way, uh, as an environment where the pieces fit together. Because the moon is it's a very fragile environment, it's also a very hostile environment, and it's small. Everything that you do on the moon will impact the others somehow especially certain activities like landing or taking off, you're going to shake the entire surface of the moon when, you, when you're going to put a starship there. And so it's insane to imagine that you will not have a mechanism to inform the others, to coordinate with the others, and to make sure that you're not screwing up other operations. And so those are the things that we, that we propose, and those are the things that everybody needs to keep in mind when engaging in lunar activities, including companies, because it's in their own interest. And then if we manage to have terrestrial companies integrated, that's where the actual economy can kick off, right? And, and this is one, uh, one thing that we really need to 
to to work better on because very few space companies have the ability to speak to terrestrial uh, counterparts and say, hey, there is a place for you in this. And, you know, uh, there is value in what we're doing because you can reapply it on Earth or the technology you're using here on Earth, you know, that could be used on space. And Toyota is a great example of that. They are going to provide a, a... a movable lunar habitat for JAXA, which is based on technologies that then will they will reuse for you know excursions on Earth and having vehicles that can go through deserts and and extreme environments. And so they, they already understand that type of approach, which we think can really be a game changer, especially in the context of the moon. And finally, the profit I don't think will be the main driver because uh, you, if you want money, you can do a lot of things on Earth. You, you don't have to go to space to make money. That's not the point at the moment. Uh, companies that are interested in space activities have different visions, different values. And so, of course, profit is important because otherwise you have no business model and you don't survive. But I, I feel that the actors that are involved at the moment, they, they see a different, they see things in a different perspective. So they want to make profit, but they also want to achieve other goals. As Jenna said, you know, they want to expand humankind. They have this vision of making humanity a multiplanetary species or, or whatnot you want, to, you want to believe in, of course. But if you want to make easy money, you don't go to space, right? You just go somewhere else. Uh, and so that's, that's what I think will, will drive them to behave <laughs> in a certain way. Because those are, those are not the type of companies that look for easy money. Otherwise, they, won't, they wouldn't be there. When you started this process, is there something that you sort of held dear and by the end of the process, <laughs> you'd abandoned Jenna. it? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I, quite honestly, I thought that, yeah, I, I think that it's not so much holding dear, but I naively thought that we would come out with like a perfect answer framework set of 10 very mutually exhaustive and uh um but a very nice set of like 10 principles or 20 principles that everyone can apply to and it's very easy and if you don't stick to them you're gonna get arrested and and then very quickly I was like that's not the way this works there's a reason this hasn't been done before so I I um I I think I originally thought that we were gonna yeah come out with this perfect set of said a, a perfect answer and actually by the end of it um i realized that no the best thing we can do to actually help the world thinking through this is come up with a way to think about the answer right. um which is the lunar charter and i think that for me was the difference that um going in i thought we could solve it coming out i think we have a good answer to help solve it if that makes <laughs> sense yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> what about what were you about? about your it's Anthony? difficult to say because um, you know when I started this, I had a lot of expectations and things in my mind, and and I am a very impatient person. So perhaps the one thing that I abandoned uh, through the throughout the process was the idea that we could uh, you know achieve um, an immediate result at the international level in a short time frame. Um, because I, I understand, I understood as I spoke with actors that this thing can start now, but it needs more time to actually, you know, be be developed in an actual framework, even if it's not even binding. Uh, and so that was one thing that I that I probably had to to digest. And that's how also we came up with the idea of the charter, because it's something that is a starting point. It's not something that you have to um just subscribe and and that's it and say thank you so much for having invented this it's something like it's going to be evolving and so the the one thing that i that i changed throughout the way is that i realized that we need to have an evolving thing 
Uh, and originally, I, I thought that we could come up with something that, uh, as Jenna said, that could be you know just written down and and then people can follow can follow through. And uh, that that didn't really work. And I think uh, it's good that we that we learn because now we made a meaningful contribution. You know, and that was one of the elements that distinguished our report from other documents, which are just you know a set of things, and you know you do them and you're gonna be fine. And that's not that simple. Do, do you think? Do you think? Things like the Outer Space Treaty and the Artemis Accords in that in that framework then have actually been really successful in what they did in terms of or what they are in fact like the Outer Space Treaty is it actually a pretty good achievement? With <laughs> As a lawyer, I uh, I can tell you yes because I'm a huge fan of the Outer Space Treaty, but I'm a bit biased, right? So uh, I can give you reasons why I think it succeeded, uh, but I'm curious to hear what Jenna says, not coming from the law perspective. <laughs> Yeah, no, I do. I do think there are good mechanisms because I think, honestly, it would have kind of descended into chaos if we didn't have the Outer Space Treaty to start with. And I think, actually, the Outer Space Treaty has done a very good job at um, filling the role of kind of how we've progressed space so far. We stayed in Earth orbit mainly. Um, that's like a flourishing ecosystem. Other parties have kind of, you know, got involved in 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 the UN and and you know, and I think. From that perspective, I think the Outer Space Treaty has been a great starting point. Um, I do think it's a little bit outdated just because if you think about the specifics of where we're heading with, for example, lunar mining of water that can power the da 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 so on, um, I think it's not as tight as it needs to be. Um, so I do think that... I do think that for to date, the Outer Space Treaty has done a great job. And I, what what our Eagle um, report uh, is talking about actually is very much in conjunction with the Outer Space Treaty. Um, so we uh, like we talk a lot about it. We're, we're fans of it um, in, on the whole. With the Artemis Accords, it's interesting because. Um, the lo- a lot of the feedback. So I'm not gonna um, like the feedback that we heard from other people. Um, is that it's, you know, and this is quite widely or publicly, uh, you know, shared that it's quite US-centric. Um, I don't think it means to be. One of the specific questions that we asked was kind of, you know, why do you think more people haven't signed up to it? Um, and the answer was we don't know because we think it's actually like, you know, very inclusive. Hopefully it's just the right thing. Um, so I do think that they are, they are helpful, um, but I think it's just a matter of, making sure that if we're going to put something out there that we want to be adopted internationally, it really is international. Um, and it's, and I think for, for you to achieve that, for anyone to achieve that, it has to be in mind with other, other stakeholders. Right. So, you know, to, to get someone, someone like China or Russia or India's buy-in, um, they're going to need like the input from point dot. Um, and so I think these, I think our space treaty, especially, as I said, has done its job. I think Artemis has tried to be helpful. Um, don't know if it's quite there even though i'm a fan of the autumn squads i don't know if it's quite there yet just purely from what we've heard um but yeah i think our report our report very much is is in support really and some of the things such as you know the human protection of uh, the protection of human life um where we think definitely should extend to the lunar charter that we're suggesting so you'll see a lot of of familiar language in what we talk about right i'm just gonna add uh, on the artemis accords because i think on the outer space really jenna uh, summarize it brilliantly. Um, so that's exactly what we're trying to do. It's integrating the treaty, uh, but building upon it. 
Uh, on the Artemis Accords, I personally am a fan of the document. I, I think uh, they mean well. Uh, they are a useful document, especially as a kickstarter of the conversation. But as everything is uh, that comes from states can be misunderstood or misinterpreted because of politics, right? So there are some things that I think uh, the Artemis Accords could have done better um, because I, I think it was meant as a, really as a starter for a broader conversation. And so on the one hand, you know, this is a document that is meant to uh, regulate the execution of the Artemis program. So it makes sense that the people who are working on it are those who are paying for the Artemis program, those who thought about it, those who want to do it, because they're just talking about how we're going to do our mission on the moon in a way that is compatible with international space law. This is a series of principles. If you want to partner with us to do the program, you know, this is, this is how we want to do it. And this makes perfect sense. The problem is that because it comes from such an influential nation like the United States, because of the, you know, the massive uh, publicity and, and outreach that they do, uh, then it's perceived as something else. It's perceived as an attempt to define the rules that will apply to everybody and the rules that will then be imposed just as a matter of fact, because, you know, the U.S. is there and their allies is there and they're powerful. And they're doing things first. And so the way that they're going to design in the Artemis Accords will end up to be the way that everybody will have to follow. Uh, which is a risk, but I don't think it's a risk that they um, that they want to go through, right? I don't think this is the way they see the Artemis, of course. They see it in a different way. Uh, and then they, I think, also recognize that the, it's not possible for everybody to sign up on the Accords, but I think it's possible to do a conversation based on the Accords. And they, and then other countries can, you know, uh, build upon the, the accords to do their own thing. You know, the China and Russia, they have announced an international lunar research station. They're going to have a legally binding agreement to be signed by the end of the year, deciding on how they want to operate on the moon in the terms of their partnership. And then other countries will join and they will also have other legal documents. So they're going to be like the Artemis Accords. In a way, that's fine. What we want to achieve with the charter is to make sure that the Artemis Accords and the Lunar Research Station and any other document governing further programs will be on the same page on the fundamental things. Because this is the point. They all are attempts at interpreting the Outer Space Treaty, but the Outer Space Treaty is a general treaty on principles. And so it can be interpreted in so many different ways that it, legally they're all legit because there is nobody, there is no state who can you know, raise their hand and say, I have the right interpretation and you have the wrong one because they don't have the power to do that. In international law, it doesn't work like that. So what we want to do is, okay, guys, you, you will end up with your own thing for your own program. That's fine. But just make sure that we all start from the same assumptions, that we all have the same ideas of what we want to do and what we want we don't want to have to do. And so that's that's the really the idea of, uh, of the charter and how it relates to the Outer Space Treaty. It kind of stays in the middle between the Outer Space Treaty and documents like the Artemis Accords. Um, it stays there because it ensures that everyone is is playing by the same interpretation or not if it's not exactly the same uh, compatible one. The, the one thing I'll just I'll, I'll add, which I think is super interesting actually, which um, is Antonio is right in that the the Artemis Accords was very much you know for for the Artemis program and then kind of you know it expanded and and you know it it, it has stronger obviously links to to NASA. Um, I think this has caused quite a lot of confusion for mm -hmm. the public because I know, for example, in England or in the UK, I should say, there was a whole hoo-ha and celebration when the UK signed up to the Artemis Accords. And so many people are like, oh, we're going to the moon. And I'm like, oh, are we? That's that's great news. 
So, uh, so many people are kind of, if, you know, you think you're signing up to the Artemis Accords and you've got to be very clear that we're signing up to Artemis Accords, TBD mm-hmm. program. And so I think terminology, whilst NASA had the really like best intentions, and as, as I said, I'm a fan of the Artemis Accords, I think things like that, um, especially for outside the US, are very people need to be very careful about because right like people love the idea of going like it's it's the glory days everyone calls it the glory days um and so a lot of people think that the uk and other countries have signed up to go to the moon and (laughs) great didn't know that wonderful (laughs) what what can people do you you know you you said right at the beginning that there was a kind of call to action really so what 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 can what can listeners and and people at university and all those kind of you know, people interested in space. What do you actually want them to do, other than <laughs> other than read the reports? But what, what else can they do? Where can they read the reports? Actually, right. where, where where should they go? Yay! <laughs> go, Anthony. You know, go. I'm so happy that you asked well, this. Well, first <laughs> first of all, um, they can read their documents and they can find them online. So if you go to www.spacegeneration.org/eagle, you're gonna find our webpage on the SGC website, and then you can find everything about our team and our documents. And then if you add slash documents to that address that I sent before, you go directly to our three uh, deliverables. You can download them for free on the internet. And then on that page, if you scroll down a little bit, you can sign up to become an Eagle advocate. And that's what I would ask the people listening here to do. If you agree with our, with our mission, if you would like to support our work, reach out to us. We're currently inviting everyone in the space community, but also beyond the space community, to say, hey, I'm interested. I want to help. This is what I can do. And please let me know. And so this is what this is what you can do at the moment. If, you, if you're passionate about this, if you want to play a role, reach out to us because we are currently collecting people that would like to support our work. And we will find a way with you to see how we can begin to implement this at the national level, at the institutional levels. Because of course, we are participating in the international process, which takes time. But we don't want to just wait and see or sit down and and you know and and just say okay let's let's do it in ten years because that's how long it takes in diplomacy. In the meantime, we want to we want to do action, and so uh, people can reach out and we will find a way to integrate them in this process to become eagle advocates, and and then we'll find a place for you in our community, and hopefully we can do something together with your own activities. We will we want to fit in the broader picture of other space activities, of other advocacies. We want to, to be on the same page with that. And so this is my, my, first, my first point. And then the second point is, even if you, don't, you know, if you don't trust us, if you don't want to become an official advocate, uh, if you read the report and you do that with an open mind, I'm sure you'll find something that you agree uh, and something that you think could be done and something that it's maybe related to what you do. And so just action, take action on that and, and think about it. You know, for instance, we have a lot of discussion on standards and developing interoperable standards for human life protection, for systems compatibility. Uh, even if you don't care about Eagle, if you don't want to be involved actively or you don't want your name uh, associated with our work, and you agree still with the fact that there needs to be a certain degree of interoperability to ensure that humans on the moon will not die because they cannot plug into the other life support system, then then and you work in that or you work close to that, you, you can do something about it. And there is going to be plenty of that in the report that you can pick and choose. So if you don't want to be part of the broader movement or the bigger picture, 
find your battle, right? And find it in the report and, and push it through. And then if you need any help from us, we'll be happy to provide it. Absolutely. And then I would just add to that that we're also um, on Twitter. So you can follow us on Twitter. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, it, as Antonino said, I think it's honestly, it's really just about no matter where you come from, no matter what your background is, no matter what your age is, really just think about, you know, the moon is all of ours. And what's important to you, right? If, if you're an artist, if you're... I don't know, a poet, someone that we haven't reflected or haven't, or you have a different perspective, or even if you, you know, are an engineer or a lawyer and, and, and have come from one of the same backgrounds as one of us, but you see something or something that's important to you is not reflected in our work or anywhere else. Um, that, that needs to be called out. It needs to be included somewhere. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's really a matter of also just going away and thinking about personally, what given the moon is, is everyone's, what is important for you? Um, in, in humanity returning back and just making sure that it's heard. And as, as Antonino said, eagles very much stand behind everyone that's trying to get their voice heard and we're very happy to hear it. So, um, yeah, we're very open to, to incorporating the weird and the wonderful. <laughs> uh, what's happening to it at the United Nations? So you've, do you, you sort of hand this in at the United Nations and they have a look at it and they either stick it in the bin or go, <laughs> oh, you know, this is really handy. Yeah, lots of, we, get, we get lots of red <laughs> pen back and a grade at the end. And then, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you get, you've got so, a two-two. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually a, a good question that perhaps uh, I can take. So the process in, in, at the United Nations works like that. There is a committee, which is the United Nations for users of outer space, uh, which is entrusted with the development of new rules of international space law because it's the only place where I think now it's 95 countries that can meet and discuss together in an inclusive way and develop rules by consensus. Now, what we have done is we have reached out to the uh, committee because SGC is an observer to the committee. So only states can be actively engaged in the work of the committee in the sense that they can vote and they can decide what the committee should do or should not do. But there is a range of people uh, on institutions actually from the international community that can become observers. And observers in the old days, they were just observing. Now we're also trying to promote our view and to offer help to the committee in order to you know, to, to do their work and to promote the development of new international space law. And so we have reached out, we said, we have this we have this document, we would like for you to consider it, and we have certain suggestions uh, for you. We would like for you to consider this um, issue from an international law perspective so that we can develop rules, and we think that a way to do these rules is the charter. And so what we've done in practice is presenting uh, this uh, in many different ways. So the committee works in plenary session, and so in the plenary session, there are formal statements which are included in the official reporting of the committee. And so SGAC during that space said, uh, talk about our work. And so said, we have this team, we have developed this work, we're gonna, uh, we want to engage with all the interested delegations and we want to, um, to find, uh, to develop a concrete result on lunar governance. And so that was one. And then following up, we had a technical presentation, which is not a plenary, uh, uh, plenary type of discussion, but it's more focused on people, delegations who are interested to listen about a specific topic. They come and then they can listen and eventually ask questions and then reach out. So we have done that as well. Then we also submitted the document in, in written forms so that it's now officially part of the United Nations document of the committee. And then every state can have a look and, and see if they agree or disagree and reach out to us if they ask questions. And then this was the general plan, but then this year there also has been a quite intense and interesting discussion 
on the, the establishment of a working group on space resources, right? Because this is one of the hot topics that is discussed at the moment at the legal subcommittee of COPUS. And so during the consultations on space resources, we had the opportunity to intervene as well, which is something that rarely happens. So I also would like to thank you know the moderators because we have been the only observer who has been allowed to speak up during the during the consultations and this is usually uh, at the discretion of the moderators of the event but uh, they are very um very very good friends of SGC and also good friend of mine Stephen Freeland and Andre Mitstyle in a moment where states were not uh, eager to speak we got the opportunity to present our views and so also there we said okay we understand it's important to have a working group on space resources but please bear in mind that space resources are connected with a lot of different topics. And so it's important that you consider those when you will develop the regulation of space resources. And at the same time, it's important to consider space resources in a specific environment. So not just space resources as a thing that exists in theory, but space resources on the moon. Because if you do if you do space resources on the moon, it's going to be very different than the way you will do it on Mars or on asteroids. And so you need to keep that in mind when you want to develop good regulation, because otherwise you will come up with something which is unpractical. So we got that opportunity, and now the working group has been created, and so we are in touch again with um, with the leadership of the of the working group to um, to find a way to include our contributions. So that, of course, depends on the decision of states. And again, we are very mindful and respectful of the process of diplomacy, but we think we can help. And I have to say, although I cannot make any specific names, but uh, many delegations reach out to us, uh, complimenting the report and, you know, uh, supporting the document and enjoying the idea of the charter. But of course, from that to actually have it implemented, it takes time because this is this is political decisions. And it, even if the, the delegates themselves like it, it has to go back to their countries, to their ministries. It, it is something that is not just uh, decided in a, in a minute. It takes some time. Uh, but we are involved in that process, we have our hands there, and hopefully we can we can give meaningful um, contributions to that to that process there. And then in the meantime, there are other organizations which are working on this uh, on so many levels. There is the Global Expert Group on Sustainable Lunar Activities, on which I'm part, which is trying to do a similar thing, right? Providing COPUS with some concrete suggestions to ensure the sustainability of lunar activities. And so there, I, I say. You know, we have this report, we have this document, we can find a way to integrate this in the work of, of this group. Uh, I had uh, Recently, I presented the work of the Eagle team to the International Space Exploration Coordination Group, which is a group uh, reuniting um, many space agencies all around the world, uh, because they, 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 they heard about it and they were interested. And of course, they will not care for any actual legal document to be developed, but if they read the report, they can find out things that are relevant to them. You know, as I said before, they can start to think about in practical terms how to implement the idea of interoperability or human life protection or heritage protection. This is These are practical things. They don't need a formal legal document to do that. Uh, and so reading the report, they keep it in mind. Uh, we have other uh, we have other talks with other institutions all around the world. We want to engage with national regulators as well. So really, um, it is a, a living process which has to go through many different avenues. And then hopefully, um, in in some time, we will see uh, the bigger picture connecting the dots, and it will make sense. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm I'm actually amazed that that sounds like you've you've made some absolutely huge inroads. Then it's it's not met with the eye rolling of of the United Nations going, oh, who are these kids or something like. That. <laughs> but it's actually sort of you know it's 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 spread quite deep and far. 
Yeah, it, it, you know, it's, it's really surreal that I'm, you know, you, you kind of scroll through LinkedIn and you see people that you kind of met here and there and very senior people sharing our report that didn't have any involvement with it. We didn't bribe <laughs> them to do it, but they're actually, a lot of people really believe in it. And it's so like, it's so, it's so wonderful to see that, you know, cause I mean, for me anyway, it sounds like Antonina knew exactly what he was doing this whole time. Like he's a pro, but for me, I felt like I was just making it up and winging it and kind of, is this right? And I think this is right. And my gut's telling me this and, you know, and there was a lot of, as I said before, there was a lot of debate, there's a lot of discussion. And so to actually see that where we ended up resonates with people, um, it's just awesome. It really is so powerful that you know, this work, it really doesn't feel like it's just going to be shelved um, and just, you know, the one thing that I was of was that given how fragmented, oh, this just comes in a nice, beautiful circle of this conversation. Given how fragmented the lunar landscape governance, the lunar governance landscape is, I was genuinely worried that it's just going to be another one of those, right? Um, and we're just going to add to that pile of people trying to solve something. And Actually, it, it really feels like something different. And I know I'm part of it and I'm very much tooting our own horn, but I genuinely think it's 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 a it's a really cool document. Um so yeah, I feel like it has good yeah. traction. This this Honestly. makes me very emotional. Well <laughs> and I would like to just oh, it's okay. <laughs> I just would like to, to take one moment to acknowledge and thank all the members of the Eagle team, you know, because this really has been an amazing yeah. team effort. And so today you, you, you heard from me and from Jenna, but please go to our website and look at the other people uh, because it's, it's, really, it's really an amazing yeah. team, team effort. And we would have not done it without the 14 amazing individuals that we got in the team. And I'm so grateful for them. You know, when I, when I started this whole thing one year ago, I, I didn't know who would have applied, you know, like I, I was like, what if I don't get any, any good people, you know, like what, what if they are all crazy <laughs> or, or they don't know what they're doing and stuff. But when I saw the applications and I went through it and then when I, we started the work and I listened through the hearings, uh, the questions that they were asking, I, I was like, I think we're going to do something good here because we have good people. And so I'm very grateful for that to all of them. Yeah, they really are. Like, uh, oh, I, they, I think working in the past year with this group, so inspiring. It's it's actually insane. Like how Antonina just spoke and I'm like, wow. I like I feel like that about everyone of, of all of our group. We really are the smartest, brightest, most energetic, sometimes most <laughs> annoying people. <laughs> uh, but it was great. It was a great yeah, recipe. And every group effort has, <laughs> yeah. you know, difficult moments. You know, we had those and, and that's only normal. It's also, I think, a good sign that we are alive and, and we're not just saying yes yeah. to each other for the pleasure of saying that. But we, we speak our mind and sometimes minds clash. But we managed to overcome that. So I will tell you that, of course, we have been very stressed <laughs> throughout the entire process. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will not deny me, that, me. but it was it was good because it meant that it was creative. It was going to something, and now what I'm actually looking forward is to celebrate with these people. You know, because we imagine we have done all of this during a pandemic at home. <laughs> We've never we, even we never met. met, and so that's crazy for me. You know, I feel that I know these people for for ages now, and we haven't met. So I really look forward to to have a beer with them and to have dinner and and celebrate and, and go dancing. Maybe you know, just I want to do normal stuff also with this group and. And I look forward to the IEC yeah. for that. Well, I'll tell you what we could do. I could promote the gig on the moon and we could all go yes. there. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. 
<laughs> but imagine we did we did all of this sober. Imagine the conversations oh, yes. we could have and what we'd come out with. Oh yeah, so it, it's either you do it on 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 booze <laughs> or or coffee, isn't it? That yeah. Is, that, that's a, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We need to transition to the former a little yeah. bit more and see. We do the exact same thing, so like a little, you know, a little bit tipsy and see what we'll we write that manifesto <laughs> 2.0, drug version of it. Yeah, yeah. We and then wake up in the morning and go what have we done <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. yeah no i think lunar governance is a is a bit of a prickly topic for some people it's a bit of a abstract topic so um i mean hopefully if people haven't thought about it after listening to your podcast they will at least give it a little bit of thought um even if they don't read our report which i encourage you to do but well, um yeah. <laughs> well i'll tell you i'll tell you what's quite fascinating whenever we have a sort of legal episode I, I i tend to get more emails than other episodes and i think it's because oh, no. there, there are some there's some real there's often very strong opinions out there so so it'll be interesting to see yeah what oh, what, what, right. what we get on it so yeah i'll keep you posted i'll keep you yeah. posted and keep give you the uh, opportunity yeah, to reply do so. we also have an email address so if people want to reach out uh, they can also reach out at eagle at spaygeneration.org um, so that that could be another way to yeah. spare you some of the annoying comments. <laughs> yeah, direct direct your angry emails to yeah. us, not Matt. <laughs> I, I promise we'll get back to everybody. But this is this was fun. Thank you so much for for having us. I really enjoyed the conversation. The interplanetary podcast is alive. There you go, George. There was the interview. What did you think? It was great, George. If people want to to uh, uh, listen to the interplanetary podcast, where can they go? They can go to www.interplanetary.org.uk. It's almost like you put too many W's there. But And if they want to get really involved, they can join us on the Discord if they join us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash interplanetary. And it'd be ever so much fun to see you all there. George, what are you doing this week? Are you off school? I am off school, yeah. And then you're doing what? Uh, climbing Ben Nevis. You're almost going to be in space. You Ooh. don't even need Virgin Galactic. I mean, I don't think it's... It's, it's not even like 10% of the way there. <laughs> not even 1%. <laughs> no, I think it is... Now, how many miles high is Ben Nevis? It's certainly not... A, it can't be a mile high, can it? Well, well look it up. Well, uh, the space is 100 kilometres up. NASA will give you astronaut wings if you go over this 80 kilometres... Whereas the international define it as the Kármán line, but Kármán himself disagrees. Disagre- d- defined it at about eighty-six or something like that. So yeah, but the inventor of the GIF pronounces it GIF. Yeah, so who so knows? Who kn- yeah, so exactly. Uh, the yeah, creator can that. never really. <laughs> the creator can he can go do one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, yeah. Well, b- before we go, let's look up the Ben Nevis height and see what percentage of a of a of a. It is 1,345 metres. It's about 16.8%. Qu- quarter of a million. What's 17% of quarter of a million? It's like a that, that's the kind of trip you're going for. But then maybe it's a logarithmic <laughs> increase in cost the higher you go. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, so, I mean, you're doing a £4,203 trip. We, we have to take into account yeah, it the must logarithmic be log- It must be uh, logarithmic, increase. man. It must be logarithmic. <laughs> right. Uh... Bye bye! Goodbye!